All right, well, welcome back to Irreligiosity. We got a, a great week this week. We got uh, two guests this time. Yes, yes, and uh, despite all efforts otherwise, they actually stayed on board to listen to us. This is take three, I think, maybe four. Yeah, yeah. Now, normally we're a little more professional than this, uh, but... I'm not sure about uh, that. That's probably a good point. Anyway, who we have on tap right now is uh, Peter Rollins and Adele Sackler. Now, Adele we've had on previously, but... Uh, Peter's uh, kind of a new twist, and I know Charlie's real excited about this, because uh, Peter is actually a philosopher. Right. I have an a undergraduate bachelor of science degree in philosophy with an emphasis on ancient Greek philosophy and ethics, which uh, I believe does not make you more ethical. It just allows you to better uh, rationalize your uh, <laughs> unethical behavior. Yes. <laughs> Well, all right. Well, well. How about we get started here with uh, with both of you introducing yourself. Either of you want to go first. Pete, you go first. Okay. Thank you. Um, yeah, my name is Pete. Uh, I'm 36 years old. And um, what would you like to know about me? What's your educational background first? Ah, yeah. Uh, I have a degree in scholastic philosophy, a uh, master's in political theory and social criticism, and a PhD dealing with post-structural theory, particularly in relation to uh, religious questions. So, uh, obviously, with that type of background, yeah. you're very religious. You're, you're, you're way out of our league. <laughs> oh, well, actually, I, probably the more I study religion, the less religious I get. <laughs> um, I, I think the last 10 or 15 years has been my attempt to escape religion. Um, but perhaps retain something of Christianity in the midst of that. Uh, in fact, I, I would argue that Christianity is fundamentally uh, not a religion, but we maybe get on to that uh, as the interview progresses. I, I should also say that I uh, coordinate a group called ICON as well. Um, ICON is a group that meets in a pub in Belfast. Uh, we meet once a month and we do what we call uh, transformance art. And transformance art is where we, it's kind of like performance art, but it looks at spirituality, looks at politics, uh, looks at faith and life. And uh, it's, it's a group of people who are made up of uh, theists and atheists, Protestants and Catholics, liberal and conservative. And we come together in our difference and we try to uh, challenge each other and challenge ourselves to live in a more um, resolute and ethical way. Wow. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to say we hit the jackpot with, uh, with Pete. <laughs> right. Yeah, we, we actually, I mean, it's other things, I'll just very briefly might be interested. I mean, we've got that main gathering that meets in the bar, but we also have a number of other groups. Uh, we have a group called The Last Supper where uh, we invite 12 people to come together and we bring a, a, a public figure, maybe an intellectual, an environmentalist, um, a religious leader, and we ask them what they believe and why they believe it. And if we don't like what they say, it's their last supper. Hence, we call it the last supper. Um, <laughs> and uh, we have a group called the Evangelism Project, where we go out to be evangelized. And we go and we, vi we visit other religious communities in order to uh, be transformed through listening to what they have to say. Um, also have a group called the Omega Course. And the Omega Course is the opposite of the Alpha Course. I don't know if you've heard of the Alpha Course, but it's a, it's a kind of a, an evangelistic tool that's used an awful lot in the UK. Um, so the Omega Course is kind of exiting Christianity in 12 weeks. And, and what we try to do is we try to exit toxic kind of fundamentalism and try to explore the possibility of a faith freed from, from that kind of thinking. 
We we could use a lot more of that here in the United States. Well, my my uh, first question though is, uh, Pete, when do you find time to sleep? <laughs> <laughs> well, thankfully, there's a few other people around helping me out with some of these projects, so I'm, I'm very lucky that way. All right, yeah. uh, Adele, let's uh, we've we've interviewed you actually twice before, right? Yeah. Well, let's give a quick introduction to Adele. Okay, um, I live in Richmond, and I just turned forty, so Pete's not far behind Adele. me. It's all yeah, no, from here. It's uh, it's what? You're not 40 yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, I know Pete from my time I lived in Northern Ireland um, with a Christian mission called Youth with a Mission, acronym YWAM. And uh, I met Pete, and uh, we had an instant connection, and we've just stayed in touch while I lived over there. And I was involved a little bit with ICON. And then when I moved back to the States in 2004, we just stayed in touch. And uh, he was just here recently in Richmond in uh, February um, for a, a lecture series that we put on here. And he has just um, been a radically um, important person in my life in regards to how my faith has been transformed, how I think about things, how I look at things. And uh, no, I'm not as intellectual as he is, but... I, I, I get a lot of what he's saying, and um, it, I think it's so good because the fundamentalism here in the United States is so rampant. And, I, you know, I meet people online and blogs, and it's like they are just so set in their answer. They're just not open to thinking about things differently. And um, I have come that way because I, I just can't live in certainty anymore. So, so that's been really good and I'm just glad that Pete was able to do this interview because I think um, your listeners will gain something really important out there not to change people's minds but to get them thinking and and to hold whatever belief or no belief they have loosely well, that's, so thanks well, Pete oh well that's perfect what we're after I mean uh, the whole reason why we do this podcast is to get people to think about things rather than just accepting things blindly so let's uh, let's start. Um, Pete, could you give us a brief rundown of your current religious beliefs or worldview? Oh wow, that that would be uh, a tough one. Um, I guess. Um, I mean, Icon was set up partly because I wanted to explore faith with other like-minded people. Um, I think when I began this journey at about the age of seventeen, I thought that I paradoxically finished the journey. When I entered into Christianity, I thought I had all the answers. I thought that I knew how to think and, and uh, I knew what other people should think. Um, and basically, as I began to read and reflect and meditate on, on these questions of life and faith, I began to realize, of course, I knew so little, I knew nothing. Um, and I began to realize that what was important was not that I thought that I had the answers, but what was important was that I was on a journey of discovering, that I was attempting to, um, you know, be a better person. I was attempting to uh, work out how I should live ethically, how I should live politically in a complex world. So I began to think of Christianity as less to do with having concrete answers and more about a way of being, um, a way of attempting to live in the world. Not a way of having beliefs about the world, but a way of as a way of trying to change the world. All right, let me run, you, run, run through a few questions. Um, do you believe that that uh, Jesus existed? Okay, I'm going to try to short circuit these questions because <laughs> I think I know where you're going to go with this. Um, I guess my concern is that Christianity and religion 
has become so interested in what you believe that that these questions are important. So, you know, do you believe that God existed? Do you believe that you know Jesus was the Son of God? Do you believe that the earth was created a, a, in a certain way at a certain time? And this is the very line of thought that I want to question. And I want to say that maybe Christianity isn't about what you believe, but it's about how you believe what you believe. Um, and in short, Christians can have a lot of different views about Jesus and about God, and yet they can still be Christian. Yeah, I think um, I actually think that that's the case. Um, in the first few centuries, uh, Christianity tolerated quite a few different beliefs. The Gnostics, for example, um, some of them believed in a dozen gods, some of them believed in 365 gods. Uh, the Marcionites believed in um, a good god and an evil god, and they were all considered Christians. Um, yeah. And we've kind of lost that through Constantine and, and um, the Nicene Creed and that sort of bottleneck where, where Christianity kind of triumphed. One version of Christianity triumphed and, and uh, the rest kind of had to subscribe to it or, or perish. Which I Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it'd be nice to have, regain some of that tolerance. As far as your beliefs, it's more of a, um, a guide to, to how you believe um, much less than uh, specifics of what you believe? is. Am I getting you right? Yeah, I mean, I suppose theology for me has always been a conversation um, throughout history. Now, when you look back in time, people think, oh, yeah, it was one belief that's just passed on through generation to generation. But actually, uh, the church has always been debating belief uh, and that this is an ongoing conversation and discussion. And what I want to do is rediscover that. And therefore, I'm very slow to say what I believe because what I really want to say is well, who cares what I believe as Pete Rollins you know um, it's probably not that important well, what what matters is um, am I thinking rationally and reasonably am I encouraging other people to think rationally and reasonably um, or are I am I encouraging dogmatism so I would prefer people to disagree with me with reason rather than dogmatically agree with me I like that that's nice um, <laughs> We just did a podcast on pagan precursors for New Testament uh, beliefs. What are your feelings about, say, the sacrament uh, having um, predated Christianity by about 2,500 years, I yeah, guess, through Osiris? Of... They had a sacrament of, of uh, beer and, and uh, bread where you'd eat Osiris' yeah. body. Well, what, do you, what are your feelings about that sort of stuff? Absolutely, I think it's a historical fact. Um, not only that, as you know, there was lots of Messiah characters around the time of Jesus. Uh, some of them born of virgins. Caesar Augustus was claimed to be born of a virgin. Uh, some of him turned water into wine. Some of him died and rose again uh, three days later. Uh, many of these things that we think are unique to the story of Christianity uh, either predate Christianity or were operating at around the same time. Uh, for me, that's just of historical interest. It doesn't have any real uh, significance for or against a life of faith. Interesting. So, so, Adele, what do you think about that? I didn't, you know, I knew there's a lot of stories in the Bible that, you know, like in the Old Testament, the story of um, Jacob wrestling with God. I know that comes out of other cultures, too. I did not know this about the New Testament. And I was going to ask what, like Christians here in the United States, are they just ignorant of this history is that why they don't 
Yes, and not only ignorant, I think it's willful because the church stamped out paganism so thoroughly that that unless you actually make the effort and look into this stuff and research it yourself, or if you have particular interest in, in these areas, uh, you won't know about it. It's certainly not common knowledge. I mean, I, it wasn't until about two years ago where I was studying Egyptian history that I discovered that there was this pagan precursor to the actual sacrament. And I mean, uh, I, I can guarantee you my eyes kind of popped wide open when I heard that. And basically what it is, is this just isn't a topic that's brought up in religious circles. Yeah, yeah. For good reason, it destroys literal belief. Yes. Yes, absolutely. But if we take something like the virgin birth, um, at the time of Jesus, you know, Caesar Augustus claimed to be born of a virgin. And so whenever we read that Jesus was born of a virgin, um, if we were living at that time, we would understand exactly what that meant, i.e. Jesus is a direct op- in direct opposition to Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus claims to have this divine birth, well, so does Jesus. But Jesus' kingdom is not of power, but of powerlessness, not of oppressors, but of the oppressed. And so if you were reading uh, or listening to the stories of Jesus at that time, when you heard about the virgin birth, you may or may not have literally believed in it, but you would have known what was being communicated by it. Now, today, it's purely reduced to a biological, scientific question. You know, was how many chromosomes were involved? Was Jesus born of uh, purely of a woman uh, with divine intervention? And actually, we've lost the significance of what it means to say that Jesus was born of a virgin. And my point is that you can believe that Jesus was literally born of a virgin, or you can question that. But what we all agree on in Christianity is that Jesus came to institute a kingdom that was for the oppressed and not for the a very, very different type of kingdom. Yeah, I think um, in that first century, there were all of these kind of literary tropes or or devices that that are found in all these different religions, and they're probably co-opted by early Jews and early Christians uh, because of context, and we've lost that context when... For example, if, if someone was um, a great sage or had miraculous powers, uh, they typically would have been born of a virgin. I think Pythagoras, the same was true of Pythagoras, um, and, mm-hmm. a, and a bunch of other kind of wandering sages. And you're right, I don't think they believed in it literally, but it, it said something about them. It was like the uh, going up to the well in the Old Testament, where you, it was a That's... literary device, to, a thematic device. You, know, you, you would expect when you hear a man going up to a well that he would meet his wife. And then yes. they, they'd twist it and, and uh, put their own take on it. Um, it's incredible. It's incredible how the literalism, this literalism's taken over in the last, you know, since the Enlightenment. I mean, the very fact, for example, of talking animals. So many cultures have creation stories where animals spoke. You know, leopards or giraffes or whatever could actually speak, but they didn't believe that they actually spoke. So in Christianity, when you have a talking snake. I mean, it's it's incredible now that, that somehow people think that, that a snake had a voice box and that a snake had, you know, the, the features that would allow it um, and also the intelligence to allow it to speak. Um, I, I don't know how it happened. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, probably a, a response to evolution, right, and, and encroaching scientific, this fundamentalist view saying, no, 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 I believe the Bible first. What were you saying, Adele? Oh, I think it's also where we put our cultural bias on things and our cultural lens that we look through. Because if a lot of I know from my fundamentalist Christian days that we looked at back to the Old Testament and 
read Jesus into all these prophecies where, you know, they didn't know about Jesus then. You know, it's so that's what I get these conservative people telling me, well, if you're going to look at everything in the cultural and historical context in the Bible, are you going to believe anything? Well, yeah, there's things you can believe, but it doesn't mean just because something there isn't literally true or that it's not meant for today doesn't mean there's some truth in something. I was going to say that fundamentalism, I think, represents a fear of allowing any sort of belief to be non-literal or um, uh, metaphorical. If you, in other words, if you take any belief of the Old Testament or New Testament to be a metaphor or an allegory uh, or anything less than literal truth, uh, you're heading down a sliding slope of uh, everything being metaphor. Yeah. And, and, and my argument is not that, you know, fundamentalism uh, or this literalistic reading uh, takes the Bible too seriously. My argument is that it doesn't take the Bible seriously enough, that actually um, it minimizes um, and mistreats and does an injustice to the biblical text. Again, taking the, the virgin birth, uh, whenever you reduce it to a, a scientific question, then all that is important is whether you say, yes, I believe it literally happened or no, I don't. But actually, if you get into the background of what the text is saying, it's so much more radical than a mere scientific question. It's actually saying Jesus came to set up a different kingdom, to challenge the kingdoms of the world, to set up something that was for those who suffered, for those who had no voice. And suddenly, by getting beyond this literalistic question, we're actually getting, I think, to the heart of what the Gospels are actually really about. Go ahead. Well, you haven't talked for a while, Leighton. So well, please. that's because I, I wish you would just <laughs> shut up for three seconds and let the rest of us talk. I have so much to off, say. He keeps cutting off Adele, and I've noticed him diving in when Pete's talking. I, I figure I need to rub him in the ribs just to go get ahead. him to shut up. Go ahead. <laughs> well, anyway, what I was uh, sitting here thinking. Now, now my, uh, my background is, is I've traveled uh, quite a bit around the world. And uh, mm -hmm. the fascinating thing, which, which I see nowadays and which I see in my study of history, is that Christianity is pretty much a local phenomenon. And what I mean by that is even, uh, even the Bible itself, where you have these flood stories, where you have uh, the virgin births, um, in these other cultures I've been around and uh, these other cultures I've studied down in uh, South America, some of those predating Christianity, uh, over in uh, Asia, many of their cultures, you don't find these stories of, uh, of virgin births or flood stories or things like that. And I was wondering what you guys consider or even think about the idea of, of this type of religion being little more than a local phenomenon built on uh, that which was brought from Egypt, spread into Greece, and then passed into Rome and, and such cases like that. What are your thoughts on such things? Mm -hmm. um, okay, I'll go first. I, I guess I, I do want to claim more than the idea that Christianity is merely uh, a particularistic uh, geographical religion. Um, and, and I would want to make the claim that actually many of its insights have a universal significance. Of course, it's geographical. Of course, it's kind of localized. But it actually has um, some kind of universal uh, insight into life and into the world. So I guess I would want to claim more than uh, what you're saying. Could you give now, an example of a universal insight that's unique to Christianity? Yeah, um, well, an interesting insight, I think, into, into what Jesus was about with the idea of, of rebirth, 
you know, the idea of you must be born again. Um, this, uh, again, in, in the tradition that Jesus was in, uh, the pagan idea was that, we're, almost like a caste idea, we're, we're, we're born into our place in history. We live and we die. Um, everybody uh, is kind of, is, is just part of the outplaying of the universe. And Jesus comes in and instigates this revolutionary idea that actually you can be changed, you can uh, transform your life. You can uh, step out of your historical necessity, this, this, just, this direction that you're going in, and, and be something else. And one, I think this is a, it's a fascinating teaching. And two, I think it does speak uh, of something anthropological, something about us as human beings. That, For example, you see in psychoanalysis, the idea that you know, the past does not need to dictate who we are in the future, that something can intervene in our lives that can transform and change us. So in other words, whenever I read something like you must be born again in, in the New Testament, I'm always asking, is that something that, that actually gives us insight into what it means to be human and what it means to change? There, there are some precursors to that in the um, Eleusinian mysteries and the Dionysian mysteries. Uh, and the Mithraean mysteries, where uh, actually I believe they um, also kind of underwent a ritual purification by baptism, and it, the symbolism is yeah. pretty much the same. You, you you die underneath the water, you're buried, and you come back in, and uh, when you reemerge, you, you kind of are, are born again. I'm not sure it's as complete or thorough in the pagan mysteries as it is in uh, Christianity. Um, but they're certainly there. And you can actually see, you know, the, in the Gnostic idea of the divine essence or spark uh, inside the human being, um, that certainly was directly lifted from the pagan idea of having the divine essence of God. You know, when they drunk the wine, they thought that they were actually possessed by Dionysus. <laughs> That's right. And, and for me, yeah, whenever I say, you know, there's an insight maybe within, say, the teachings of the are presented in the Gospels. I absolutely don't think that they are contained only there. Um, if, if they were contained only there, that would be real evidence for their um, their failure or their falsity. Um, I think these insights are happening, obviously, in various religions and various uh, intellectual traditions. Um, but whenever I read the, the Gospels, I think the reason why they're still very pertinent, you know, they still have a, a, a vitality um, that, that other books don't have, simply for the fact that still so many people at least claim to, to be transformed by them. My question is always, why is that? And I think the answer is because they do speak to something quite deep in us as human beings. Um, but, but my argument is partly, you know, the fact that the Bible still remains potent for so many people. Um, and, and I simply want to find the answer to why, why that would be. Sure, and and I might be taking it from the exact wrong uh, angle because, in the context of the New Testament, at least, the ancients believed that the older the idea, the more trustworthy it was. <laughs> so, yes. so yeah. they would often liberally borrow from more ancient traditions, and it's one of the reasons uh, Judaism was so important to Christianity because they could track mm -hmm. their. We're not this new kid on the block. We're not a new religion on the block, and thus you shouldn't be suspicious of us. Uh, we actually trace our, our origins back to this very ancient religion. Absolutely. A part of my project actually is to reconnect Christianity with its uh, Jewish roots. Um, now, I'm trying to do a number of things. That's just one of the projects, but it's trying to rediscover those roots. Because I think within Judaism, for example, belief isn't of central importance. You know, what's more important is um, uh, ritual 
and communal life, being part of the community of believers. So Judaism is one of the most atheistic religions in the world. I think it's only second to Buddhism. Uh, and that's because in, in Judaism, you know, belief in God, you know, that comes and goes. But, but are you still, you know, are you still keeping the tradition? Are you still part of the, the community? And, and I want to, in one sense, rediscover that because I think that that's what Christianity's lost. Yeah, I'm, I'm starting to see where you're coming from. I think that um, it's very interesting the rise of secular Judaism, where they use the, the temple and the synagogue, I think, as um, just sort of meeting places. And that's one of the things that atheism lacks is a sense of community. Yeah. Um, well, it's kind of a surprise to run across another atheist. I mean, uh, <laughs> All right, it is. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Adele, how important do you think that communal aspect is in in uh, in your Christianity? Do you attend church, or do you get together with people like like Peter on a regular basis? I have a uh, a big online community, whether it's through Twitter or Facebook or blogs. That um, right now, because I don't go to church anywhere, uh, we're not going and. There's people who argue, well, you need that, you know, community in person. And I agree. We have a group of friends that, you know, we do life with, you know, conflicts arise. We deal with it. We care for one another when we're sick. We celebrate birthdays together. To me, that's doing life together. And I don't think you need it in the construct of a church building or that you have to hear a sermon. I mean, I'm always reading. I'm always talking about things with people. And to me, that that just living and being and I. I just don't feel I need to be in a church construct. There'll be people who disagree with me, and they're certainly free to their opinion. But um, but I haven't found a community per se like Icon that I feel a part of or want to give my time and energy to. So I, you know, we're talking about maybe starting something when we get back out to California. Nice. I have to say I'm a little jealous of uh, my wife and uh, regular churchgoers because they get to interact with like-minded people on a weekly basis. What are you mm-hmm. saying? I'm not like-minded. Uh, I'm saying you're. <laughs> Not of my intellectual uh, standing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't get the same amount of fulfillment as I would with someone as smart as myself. Uh, I think I need to leave now, so you guys continue. <laughs> there's, there's actually um, there's something that you might be interested in. I, I'm very fascinated. I think Alan de Bouton has set it up. I don't know if you know Alan de Bouton. Um, it's a church or it's a community called the the School of Life, and they're in London, and it's almost like a church for people who don't believe. They have, you know, instead of a sermon, uh, a religious sermon, they'll have, you know, intellectuals, they'll have environmentalists, they'll have activists who'll give a sermon. Um, instead of uh, in, youth, in the youth work, instead of doing Sunday school, they'll introduce children to, you know, the environmental issues, et cetera, et cetera. They have like, uh, instead of small groups, they have, um, they go out for meals and they have a menu, on the, which is a menu of interesting ideas to discuss around the table. And they also have a a type of one-on-one therapy where someone will sit down and try and help find books that you might like to read. Um, And so you meet with them once a week and they recommend books. And and you can also, they also offer holidays where you can go around London with a photographer uh, he'll, or you go around Paris with someone who's written um, a short story about Paris. Uh, they have uh, lectures on Karl Marx that will be t- taking place in trade union centres or on Rembrandt that will be happening in a, in a museum. But basically they're structured very like a church, but without dogma. Uh, that would be fascinating. 
That would be absolutely yeah. fa- almost like a, almost like a, a school or university setting. I'd love yeah. to do that once a week. Now, see, that's something yeah. that's intriguing to me as well. I mean, where you actually sit down and you uh, you discuss these varying ideas without bias. Now, are you saying you miss human companionship as well, Charlie? <laughs> I, I always will be able to sport with you. <laughs> this is something. I mean, this is the reason why I said icon, um, and icon does um, a fair amount of that, but it, it does it in. Um, more of a performance art kind of way, but secretly, this is the first time I've, I've said this publicly, but I, I am thinking of trying to set up something similar to what Alain de Bouton is doing, because um, I think there's a real need for it. And all of my friends who, for example, have left church, who may have once gone to church, the one thing they miss, especially those who are having kids, is the communal aspect, being able to talk and discuss and meet with different people. And, and, I, and I think there's a place for creating communities like that. Well, now, curiously enough, this is this is kind of away from the subject we're on, but it, it is kind of a problem I have religion, and uh, and uh, what it is is I think God is an absolute horrible businessman, and uh, mm-hmm. what what I mean by that is uh, why... I disagree. At least in the Mormon structure, they they have a ten percent tithing set up. And they have no product whatsoever. They just keep promising <laughs> that after you die, you'll, you'll receive the product and you pay 10% your entire life. I think that's genius. All right, well, I mean, well, go ahead. Forgive yeah. me. Where, where the LDS is concerned, they've got a master plan there. But, but what I mean by God being a bad businessman is why is it he didn't stick these truths all around the world? Why is it we didn't see uh, a rise of Christianity in the uh, the old nations of uh, of Africa, Europe, and then see the same thing over in America, see the same thing over in Asia. Why did he just pick one spot to start at? I'll take, I'll of, take that one. Oh, um, you're going to take that one? What it is is a, um, a Ponzi scheme. And so he starts with his chosen people, <laughs> and they sign up people underneath them, and they sign up people underneath Oh, oh so we're looking at a pyramid scheme. Here. <laughs> a pyramid scheme. <laughs> You guys want to take that um, and answer it seriously. Oh, He's talking okay. about the lack of yeah. uh, efficiency, I guess, of God. Yes, He's not the, very the efficient. lack of efficiency. I mean, why would why would he allow so many children? I mean, how I, could I, people go their entire lives without even hearing about Jesus? And I know you're saying, Pete, that uh, that we should look on the philosophies that are here because they hold truths, universal truths that we need to learn. But why is it that God didn't spread this around the world and just kind of plant it here and there? Why is it when you go to some of these tribal nations down in uh, Brazil, do you see something completely opposite of what even Christianity could even discuss? See, I, I think what you're saying is a deep problem if you assume the idea of God that the majority of the traditional, at least the evangelical church in, in America and in the UK, assume God to be. As soon as you, which is what you're doing, you assume, playfully, as soon as you assume that view of God, I, God created a new religion, and that new religion is called Christianity, but that's the correct religion, and you have to be in that club in order to be saved. As soon as you have that, that paradigm for God, suddenly all these difficult questions arise. But but if you look at someone like Jesus as not so much finding a new religion, but rather critiquing an existing religion, um, coming in and being a cut, coming in and kind of questioning and opening something up. And so Jesus, in one sense, being not the founder of a new faith, but someone who comes in and says no faith, no religion can give us the answers that that. And actually, Jesus is opening up a very different way of thinking um, about God, about life, and about what religion is. 
then I think these questions begin to dissolve. Pete, I like talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> so you see Christianity more as a, as a criticism of or a critique of Judaism, which I uh, yes, yeah. I mean that that so, matches with the context. Uh, Jesus was a, if he did exist, was a wandering uh, itinerant um, apocalyptic preacher uh, who mm -hmm. actually wasn't, and Christianity was never very uh, <laughs> acceptable to the Jews. Um, they they uh, as soon as Paul got in and started. Uh, uh, going to the Gentiles, it kind of exploded, but it was never very popular with the well, Jews. Well, of course, Paul expected the world to end very shortly, which is why he didn't even set up real churches. Sure, so. <laughs> sure. Yeah. yeah, I mean, if you look at, I mean, Karl Marx's famous comment um, in his critique of Hegel's uh, philosophy of right, the opening line says, you know, the beginning of all critique is the critique of religion. And people hear that and they think, oh, that's very negative, that's very, um, you know, anti-Christian. But actually, is that not what all the prophets did? The first critique was the critique of religion. Is that not what Jesus did? Is that not what Karl Barth did? Is that not what Dietrich Bonhoeffer did? Uh, that the, the, the first critique is the critique of religion itself. That's why at the very beginning of this interview I said that I think Christianity is, is religionless. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, near the end of his life, as you may know, um, talked about religionless Christianity. And um, this, is, this is how the figure of Jesus seems to me, that his, like Nietzsche's critique um, of Christianity and Marx's critique of Christianity is very, very similar to Jesus' critique of, of, of religion. You know, interestingly enough, you are fascinating to talk to. You have a you have a great way of looking at things. You just like his accent. Yes, that's true. <laughs> of course, I, I lived over that way, so uh, I'm the one that's used to more of an accent than you are. So why don't you yeah. shut right. up? Yeah, there you go. Yeah, something to say. <laughs> well, anyway, um, like I was saying, you have this this fascinating viewpoint on things, and so I would love to hear your thoughts on the problem of evil. I, I can almost I can kind of see where you would go with this, but I'd like to hear you actually discuss the problems with evil. Probably, yeah, theodicy. I mean, uh, ultimately, for me, one of the earliest critiques of theodicy, which is, as you know, the, the, um, the trying to justify evil uh, in relation to God, uh, one of the earliest critiques of uh, trying to explain evil and suffering is in the Book of Job. Um, the Book of Job is an absolute critique of different people try to give a reason for Job's suffering, and they all get it wrong. And actually, at the very end, God comes up and uh, kind of looks pretty bad in the story. He doesn't give an answer for the suffering. Just starts saying, where were you whenever I put the, you know, the stars in the sky? Right. Um, uh, God actually berates Job. He, he asks him a bunch of questions that he can't answer. And basically, yeah. he's left with the idea that, well, he should just sit down and shut up. Because he's not <laughs> God. It doesn't but, actually but interestingly, yeah. offer a theodicy, it, but... Yeah, absolutely. But interestingly, you know, Job comes out a lot better. God comes out looking like a bully, you yeah, know, like, yeah. you know, like an impotent person. So whenever you're impotent and you start shouting and start saying all of this stuff and Job comes out quite good. But yeah, so, so some, an answer. he would have looked a whole lot better if he had given the answer. Yeah, but 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 that's what's interesting is there an answer isn't given for me. Um, that what the Christian kind of response to suffering and evil is not to offer um, some sort of uh, theoretical justification, but rather it is to identify with those who suffer. Can, can I just briefly tell a, a beautiful parable? And it's a parable of a mother whose uh, child dies, and she's so distraught that she she ties the infant to her body with cloth, and she goes in search of someone who will be able to, um, you know, help her. And she goes to like magicians, and she goes to doctors, and finally someone says, "Listen, there's this holy man." 
and he lives up in the mountains and he's so close to God that he supposedly can part, you know, part the waves with a gesture and he might be able to help. So the woman goes up to his house, knocks on the door, um, she's brought in and as the holy man listens, he eventually speaks and he says, I'll be able to help you. But first, you have to bring to me a handful of mustard seeds from the home, uh, from a home that hasn't suffered from death and suffering. And so the woman goes in search of a house that hasn't had that shadow of death and suffering. And finally, she can't find any home that hasn't been touched. But as she hears the stories of other people who have suffered, she, she gradually um, comes to terms with her own suffering and is eventually able to bury her child in the ground. Now, for me, that is the religious or the Christian response to suffering. It's that we hear each other's stories. We listen um, and we are in community together. It's not about giving an answer. It's about suffering alongside. Which I guess is kind of the point of Job, right? There, there isn't an answer and uh, <laughs> everyone suffers. And um, yeah, that's interesting. It's interesting yeah. to take yeah. on. As soon as, as soon as as soon as you try to justify something like the Holocaust, um, it just looks ridiculous and it looks horrific. Very much so, very you know? much so. And I got to tell you, Pete, that's probably the best answer I've ever received for. It wasn't question. an answer. It, it wasn't <laughs> an answer. You know what? Why don't you sit there and He's shut just up? lulled by the sound of your voice. Yes, yes. I'm going to be sleeping soon. Adele. <laughs> <laughs> Both of you sound like um, you're almost post-Christian in a sense, that um, you're aware uh, Christianity probably will be 15 or 20 years from now. Um, how, did, how did you guys arrive at this? Um, I can almost see it in Europe because Europe is almost a post-United States, post-Christian uh, mm -hmm. church attendance is down. How did you come about this, Adele, especially coming from a, a fundamentalist, literalist background? Well... I always had questions about things that, you know, I would read inconsistencies in the Bible or contradictions, and I had questions, but um, because I was in a fundamentalist church and I was looking, I was always my whole life looking to please people and do the right thing, I, I had this community, and I didn't want to rock the boat, so I didn't outwardly ask my questions, but when I moved out to Los Angeles and I was dealing with um, the same-sex attraction, I, I had this... Um, fight going on inside me. So I started reading about postmodernism and I started reading Brian McLaren and it got me, it was like he was saying things that, oh, he's expressing things I had thought but never out loud. And so then not long, a couple years later, I go over to Northern Ireland and I um, meet Pete and uh, he spoke for a week where I was living and it just so this was like Pete's fault, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just um, I just can't live in the certainties anymore. And, I, you know, yeah, sometimes as a human, I want answers. You know, why is there pain? Why is there suffering? But I, I'm more comfortable with not having all the answers than I used to be and living in the black and white. And, I, and when I interact with people who take a literal interpretation, they just, you know, they don't get that or they think I'm a heretic or, you know, whatever. How could I be a Christian? And uh, I just... Um, I just, and I don't have all the answers. As, as Pete says in his one book, you know, I'm, I'm becoming Christian. I have not yet arrived. It's a process. So, I, um, when I discuss it, because I, I take it for granted that intelligent people don't uh, assume the literal view of the Bible. So I'm always stunned every single time when I come up with with someone who actually believes that the flood was global or uh, 
the rainbows didn't exist before the flood, or or et cetera, et cetera. It's I mean, quite shocking, shocking, actually. It is, and, and I mean, it, it. What you're saying, Adele, kind of reminds me of a discussion I had with my brother about uh, a month ago, wherein he called up and uh, was basically berating me for being atheist and uh, basically asking me, so you don't believe there was anything before and you believe there's going to be nothing afterwards. And I was explaining to him, yes, and his concept on that was, if I close my eyes and I can't think of nothingness, therefore there is nothingness after this goes. Hey, what do you think about that as a philosopher, Peter? Do you... <laughs> <laughs> I cannot conceive of nothingness, therefore... There's no such thing as nothingness. Right, yeah, <laughs> yeah, actually. yeah, yeah, that's a problem. And, and and to be honest, I mean that's that's one of the reasons why we the afterlife is appealing, or it's hard to think of death. I mean, like I I I didn't live before I was born, but I, I can't conceive of that, and so it's very hard for us to conceive, and impossible for us to conceive of our non-existence. Right. Therefore, yeah, for for people, common sense goes, I I can't not exist, and yet every night when we go to sleep. We kind of, in a sense, enter into a, a type of a foreshadow of our death, you know? There's such a disconnect between people who, because I'm sure when he was arguing with you, he couldn't fire those neurons either. He couldn't... Uh, he just couldn't conceive. He could not conceive that, that, that you actually believe this or, or how it was possible. So I'm wondering how, how it is possible to bridge that gap and... Well, you guys are so fascinating because you have. It, it seems like you've, you've already you've bridged You've stepped that. across that gap already, and so that that is what is so fascinating with talking to you. So I stepped across um, and never looked back. I just, uh, you know, gradually my religion fell away, and, and uh, it's hard for me to conceive of, of a need or a use that I would have for religion. Uh, but yeah. you yeah. guys have, have kept that. Well, I'll tell you something. I mean, one, one of the things about what I do is, um, and it's quite different from some of my friends, is that, uh, and one says my my church time was very positive and and I really enjoyed it and well, so whenever I look at people who go to church and I and I look at the, a lot of the evangelical tradition, um, my first reaction isn't these people are dumb or silly or anything like that. I go there is something absolutely amazing happening, you know, that brings these people together and that, to worship in this way. And then what I want to do is try to discover what that is, and then I want to try to encourage those people and say, you don't have to lose the good, but you can get rid of the bad. And and actually, I'm finding I'm getting invited to evangelical colleges, universities, churches, and they're very receptive to this message. Because, for example, I'll say to somebody, um, there are things that one is certain about uh, and yet has no real belief about. And I'll use the example of life. Um, I, I, I can't deny that I live. You know, I, I, I'm living. But every time I try to reflect on what life is, I either become a Cartesian dualist and, uh, you know, reduce myself to a, a physical body and some sort of soul that's that's controlling everything. And then, of course, there's the problem of how does the soul connect with the body and where is it located? Or I become a, um, a behaviorist and I just say, you know, consciousness is an epiphenomenon of biological processes. In other words, as soon as I try to reflect upon what my life is, there's something that I lose, but I can't deny my life. So I, I say to people in church, you know, there's something that's happened in your life. You feel like you were dead and now you're up. But every time you try to explain that with the theology, the theology will never do justice to it. So keep, keep the certainty, keep that sense that I was dead and now I'm alive. But yet be very 
careful to hold your way of interpreting that lightly. And, and often that goes down very well. Have you guys seen uh, the series Six Feet Under? No. No, I haven't. I don't really watch much TV. Is it good? Uh, yeah, we just rented it you know, through Netflix and just finished the series. But the, it's about a family running a funeral home and how they deal with death day in and day out. You know, And the one character, Nate, uh, he said that uh, death is uh, a dreamless sleep. Because <laughs> he, he died, he would, and when the people die, they come back and they, in their dreams, talk to them. And you know, it, it, it's interesting. I don't know where, where what I do when I die. I used to think, oh yeah, I'm going to heaven and I'll spend eternity there. And I don't really know. I think it would kind of suck to live this life and uh, die and then have that be it. But if that's it, what can I do about it? You know what I mean? It's I've got to learn how to live in the here and now and how I treat people. And uh, and like Pete said, identify with other people's suffering and, and, and just enjoying life, too. So, You know, that's yeah. kind of interesting, Adele, because uh, you almost verbatim described to me what my brother said to me. And uh, curiously, my answer to that was um, that I actually see life as more precious because, I mean, I, I don't think there's anything after this. I think when we die, that's it. It's just a biological thing. We die, we turn into dust. And uh, my brother could not see that, and I think that being an atheist, in a lot of ways, actually makes you appreciate life more, because there is no belief of an afterlife. There is nothing beyond this. And that was one of the concepts that my brother just could not wrap his mind around. Mm. Yeah. We, we've really lost that, I mean, because the, the Greeks had this understanding, you know, you actually saw it in the film Troy, one of the few good lines in the film was whenever Brad Pitt says to um, one of the temple acolytes, he says, you know, you worship the gods, don't you? And she went, yes. And he said, I'll tell you a secret. I'll tell you something they don't tell you in the temple. He says, the gods, they worship us. He says, they would rather have one day where they could have the possibility of death and therefore know what life really was. They would rather have one day where they could lose something so that they would know what having something really meant. And so there's, there's the view that if, if, if there is no afterlife, then life is meaningless. But it's equally plausible to say, no, if, if there was an afterlife, then life would be meaningless. And the only way life has meaning is if it ends. Yeah. yeah. We were uh, talking about this last week in the Iliad. There's a scene where Odysseus... Um, uh, no, the Odyssey. He goes down into uh, Tartarus and uh, speaks to Achilles. You know, he drinks his blood and he emerges from the zombie-like state. Not his blood. He feeds him sheep blood. Sheep blood? I believe it was sheep I blood. I don't know. Um, so he, <laughs> so uh, he comes out of it and, and says that the afterlife is so miserable that he'd trade all of his honor and glory, you know, just to be a slave. Um, anything yeah. would be good. So the Greeks had this idea that life was heaven. Um, yes, and uh, the afterworld was horrible. We we have this idea in Christianity, generally speaking, that um, it's the, this world awesome. is horrible, and that's kind of the apocalyptic message, right? We got to wait until God solves everything, and then next world will be great. Oh, I was just going to say, and the interesting thing about uh, the, the Christian narrative, reading it in a different way, uh, you've got a fascinating story of the incarnation, where actually it's about you know God entering into the world. You know, some, someone like Slavyov Shizek says, you know, that's God's salvation. You know, God enters into the, the human world. And you've also got in Christianity, Christianity thinks the only religion where God is an atheist, where, you know, where Jesus on the cross says, you know, why have you forsaken me? G.K. Chesterton, the conservative Catholic theologian, makes a very big deal of it. He says, you know, this is the only religion where God, God in himself 
ceases to believe in God, you know. So there, Christianity is much more complex than we're led to believe. <laughs> well, wow, my, you, you just tossed my train of thought out there, making me laugh. Nice. <laughs> and, and that's well. That's why Slavyov Shizek, who's one of the most prominent atheist writers today, um, is so obsessed with Christianity and has written three books on it. And says the only way to be an atheist is to, or one of the main ways to to be an atheist is to actually embrace the Christian legacy. So um, there is a big tr in Europe and European philosophy at the moment. The the atheistic tradition is very much wrapping itself into Christianity. Bizarrely. Interesting. Um, is rather what, what I want to know is, for both of you, what what keeps you in the religion? Why not be an atheist? Do you want to go for that, Adele, first? You could go first. Okay, what keeps me in the church? Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, for me, um, it, 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 what do humans want? Freud asked the question, what do women want? Um, and Jacques Lacan, who's a French psychoanalyst, he kind of tried to give an answer to it. But he kind of expanded it out and said, well, what do human beings want? And in a sense, he said, human beings want a master we can dominate. We want a leader who'll tell us exactly what we want them to say. Right. So you say it. And then if it doesn't work out, I don't have to blame myself. I can blame you. You know, so in church, for example, you could say to the pastor, you said that if I prayed for my child, she would get better. But she didn't. She died. Therefore, I'm leaving the church. But, but what's happening there is the person's not taking responsibility for the fact that actually they, that's what they wanted the pastor to say, you know. So um, w what it keeps me in Christianity is uh, in, in analysis and psychoanalysis, people think the analyst is there to analyze the behavior of the analyzant, the client. But actually, the analyst is there to refuse to do analysis, to push back. So as the person analyzes themselves. And so what we need is we need a leader who refuses to lead. We need, you know, a, a, an authority figure who pushes back on us. And in Christianity, I feel that there is this, this is written large, that you have an idea of God who refuses to be God. Who every time that we try to push out and say God is this or that, God says, I'm bigger than that. I'm different from that. Pushing us back into the world. That every time we try to say, um, we try to colonize God with names. The Judeo-Christian tradition says you can't do that. You have to take responsibility for yourself. So paradoxically, my argument in brief is that in order to be a true materialist, one uh, is in a good position to be, one should be a Christian. Because when we project out and we try to escape from the world, there is this pushing us back. The Christian narrative pushes us back into the world. It acts as an analyst. Well, what about you, Adele? I don't know. I I used to think I had to believe and assent to certain doctrines, dogmas to, to believe and be a Christian, and I no longer think that. I'm actually reading a book, not very far into it, but it's from the 60s from this uh, British guy. It's called The Christian Agnostic. And um, how he says you can still retain your belief in Christ and God, but not if you feel, even though you feel you can't sign, you know, on the dotted line on everything. And I don't know. I, I feel like I've had some kind of encounter. I, I don't know how to explain it, if, if it uh, mystical encounters or what. But I, I, God fascinates me. Um, Jesus fascinates me. Um, his people, not so much. But and it gets tiring, especially being a, a queer Christian and having conversations with people who, you know, tell me I'm a reprobate or I'm going to hell or I can't be a Christian. And it, it does get wearing at times. But I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. But something keeps drawing me. I, I, I don't know if that's you know, the divine, I, I don't know, but it's, I just feel like I don't, 
it's not that I have have to out of um, legalism. It's 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 an inward desire for me. So can, can I come off the back of that? Actually, yeah, I think that's yeah. what you just said is fantastic. I mean, if you if you talk to the people in Icon and you say to them, do you believe in God? But half of them will probably say no, right? So half the people who go to Icon or <laughs> will say no. But then if you ask them, well, why do you go? What do you think they'll say? They say, because God spoke to me. Why, don't be so stupid, because God spoke to me. That's why I'm here. Why, why else do you think I'm here? <laughs> so you have to go, right, okay, so you don't think God exists, but you know, God spoke to you. And, th- for, and for the people in Icon, absolutely, that's, that's their answer. Um, Carl Bard, uh, at the end of a, a lecture, once was asked, did the serpent in the Bible literally speak? And Carl Bard said, the question isn't whether the serpent spoke. The question is, what did the serpent say? And in the same way I do this with God, people say to me, you know, does God exist? And as a philosopher, I love that question. I want to go, let's go down to the pub and let's talk about it. Fantastic. But say, if you're asking me as, as a Christian, I, I don't care. The question is not whether or not God exists. The question is, what has God said to me and what am I doing about it? In other words, the voice comes first. And, and an icon, you go like, all I know is that I've been called. There's something in me. But if you're asking me where that voice comes from, maybe it was the cheese I ate last night. Maybe it was my <laughs> cultural upbringing. You know, maybe it's God. I don't know. But all I do know is that is that I feel called. Um, and so, yeah, I think, Adele, you're, you're really hitting something nail on the head there, you know. Yeah. I think it's interesting um, in that that, that view that uh, whether or not God exists is secondary to uh, what is actually written and what is actually said that view, strangely enough, leads to more tolerance uh, than the typical mainstream American uh, Christian view, which seems to have lost its way as far as tolerance is concerned. Uh, Tolerance seems to be the least um, virtue, I guess. Um, And you know what else? Not only does it lead to less tolerance, but it leads leads to less action, the other belief. I mean, you go, um, you look at, uh, you know, people who go to church and they're, they, they will sing and you worship and you praise and you go to your uh, prayer meeting on a Tuesday night. But then it doesn't seem to necessarily affect what car that you drive, what, where, where you live, you know, what you do for your work. Um, it almost feels like a supplement, you know, like, um, uh, you know, like in the Matrix films where, where Neo, we think Neo's the hero. We think that Neo is the, is the Messiah and his, his, the people around him are the freedom fighters. They're like the disciples. But then as the trilogy moves on, we realize that actually the machines let Neo do what he does. Neo's just the latest in the long line of messiahs. And actually, the people we think are the freedom fighters are only there because the machines want them to be there. And we ask the question, oh, by the way, that's why the Matrix trilogy actually works, even though the, the later films might be kind of crap. Um, it works because, um, <laughs> because there's a very, very deep insight, which is the site that we think is the site of resistance is the, thing, the very thing that the, the system needs in order to oppress more fully. So take the example of, like, the government. You know, we're all allowed to, you know, go over the speed limit to do transgress, institutionally allowed transgression. Um, you know, in a, in, a, in, a, in a job, we're allowed to slag the boss off. And that's a good thing because that's the, that's, the, that's the valve that actually stops us from, you know, uh, really taking action. As long as you slag your boss off, it doesn't matter if you come in at nine o'clock and do a full day's work. And what happens is the church becomes the valve. People go and they believe adamantly, um, because, uh, but then they, they leave and, and nothing really changes at all. My, my hero in Christianity, and, and I'm sorry I'm going on here, but uh, my hero is, is Mother Teresa. 
Mother Teresa, she didn't really, she was full of doubts. She didn't know at all. Whenever she died, we find all these letters that make her go like half the time she was an atheist. She didn't believe at all most of the time. But the fact is, she believed in her lifestyle. You know, her Christianity, in one sense, wasn't an intellectual belief. It was, it was lived out in what, in what she was doing and how she was living and how she was being. Yeah, well, she, she surrounded herself in, in uh, abject poverty and suffering, and it's very hard to maintain a, a true belief, I think, when, when you see that God allows all that, uh, all that to occur on a daily come. basis. Yeah. I think that was her main complaint. Yeah. And, yet, and yet she was able to, and she was able to kind of live this out, live it. I mean, my concern is, you know, way in, in canned laughter and television, CSXS is, you know, canned laughter. It it, it doesn't, it, it's not there, which people think it's there to to tell us when we can laugh. But actually, it's it's more complex than that. Canned laughter is there to laugh on our behalf, so that we don't have to laugh. So we can watch a whole TV program and we can feel like we've laughed. But we we didn't. It laughs on our behalf. Just like going to, um, I went to see Snow Patrol recently, and you know I'm paying money for them to weep on my behalf. You know, sing sad songs. I, I don't cry. I don't feel sad. But at the end of the concert, I feel like I have cried. They cry on my behalf, and I feel like you know a lot of people go to church so that it believes in their behalf. You know, we kind of do this thing on a Sunday. We talk about justice. We talk about, you know, God loving the poor and, and all of that. And we do, so as we don't have to do it ourselves. It, it, it believes in our behalf. We outsource our belief into the church. This is, this is what I'm writing a book at the moment, and it's all about this. Um, and I just think it's a fascinating structure. We're, we're in the same way that TV programs laugh on our behalf and musicians cry on our behalf. So the church believes in our behalf. And I want us to you know, take it into our lives um, and, and live as though we believe, even though we doubt. That's an and interesting I, insight um, because it, in that insight, I think, means that um, the majority, at least of American religion, is, is almost detrimental because it uh, prevents them from doing something that's really meaningful. Well, and I mean, it, it, it kind of reminds me of a brother I have. Now, Charlie and I have discussed this particular Layton has brother. tons of brother stories, by the way, because he <laughs> yeah. has a brother. Yes, yes. It's, this, it's, this is like Columbo. Columbo <laughs> always has a story about a brother or a brother-in-law. <laughs> exactly right. well, see, see, the problem is, is I was raised in a family of 19 children, so take your pick. <laughs> wow. <laughs> but, uh, but no, this, this particular brother, Charlie and I have had discussions with him, constant, or not with him, but about him, about how neither of us think he truly believes. Now, uh, now this particular brother, he's kind of the type that gets pushed around a lot. So uh, uh, previously, we've always just kind of figured that uh, that he didn't have any backbone to stand on his own. That that if he was to step outside of what my family believes and what my parents believe, that it would be detrimental because he would lose that aspect of, uh, I guess, uh, condoning it or uh, respect that my parents would give him. However, i got to tell you, what you just said there, Pete, makes me wonder if I should be considering it a different way. And that's actually something I'm going to be considering and probably in discussions with Charlie a little bit later on, but that's a very fascinating view you have there. Oh, yeah, interesting. I mean, it's psych psychoanalytically, you know, there is this thing where sometimes a child finds it very difficult whenever they lose faith to tell their parents. And, and people think it's because, uh, you know, they don't want to hurt their parents or, or anything like that. But, but quite often what happens is the reason why they do want to tell their parents psychologically is because the parents believe through the child. And whenever the child ceases to believe, 
it actually causes a crisis in the parents' belief because they believe, just in the same way that parents believe in Santa Claus through their children, you know, the whole belief in Santa Claus becomes alive again when you've got a child who believes in Santa Claus. And it's actually when the child, and so often, which is a documented fact, often children pretend to believe in Santa Claus because they know it's what the parents want, you know. Um, and there's this, there's this chill line. So I, I'm fascinated, and I'm writing a lot about this at the moment, fascinated in how we get other people to believe in our behalf um, and how we outsource our beliefs to others. I mean, if, if I tell you this, one of my main projects this year, and I'm moving out to America for a while, hopefully to set some of this up, is I want to create religious structures that are riven with doubt. Worship songs that are all about, you know, God not being there as much as they're about God being there. Sermons that are about absence and, and liturgies and have doubt riven in the whole structure of the church. I and then the, support that project. The idea, because for me, we... we we, we say, I talk to people all the time and say, oh, I doubt, I'm not sure if God exists. And then I watch what they do. And they go to church and they sing songs like Jesus, my boyfriend, and they uh, they ha hear sermons which are all about certainty and absolutism. They, their, their liturgies are all about God is definitely there. And I'm going, right, you say you doubt, but actually the church is believing on your behalf. So what I want to do is create churches which, which actually don't contain our belief. They're full of doubt. But then the challenge is this. When you step out of the church, believe, not in your head, not intellectually, but believe in your life. Try to be like Christ. But So in other words, doubt that God exists in your mind, but live as though God exists in your actions. Pete, I'm going to have you come out to California and help me and Katrina start something. Well, that's why I'm moving out to the U.S. I want to see, I want to see dozens of these set up in the next few years. Yeah, um, that's actually. I wanted to say something back when we were talking about tolerance. I wanted to push back on that myself. Wouldn't it, I, I'm putting this out there. Isn't Jesus pushing back beyond to push us beyond tolerance to love? Isn't love even another step beyond tolerating people? Because tolerance to me can have a negative connotation saying, oh, well, I, I'll tolerate you. But wouldn't it be a pushback more and say, no, it's more, it should be more about loving people? Well, I agree yeah. with you. I, I at this point, I would settle for tolerance. <laughs> yeah. I, I would too, but I, I'm just asking. And, uh, and, and interestingly, the, the interesting discourse about tolerance is fascinating because tolerance in in our society often means deep intolerance. In other words, uh, I'm tolerant of you as long as you don't tell me your potentially sexist or racist views. In other words, in the public square, we're all tolerant of each other as long as nobody talks about anything and actually go that's that's a real intolerance that's because we we're scared of of the other we're actually scared of what they'll say so whenever we say well we're all being tolerant we're really just hiding our views um and i would i think love goes further than tolerance is exactly what you're saying adele is that that love can somehow cope with difference in a way that that you know our current society, we're very bad at doing. We can only cope with difference as long as you hide your difference away. And I, and I really do want to see a place where we can fight it out, where we can actually talk about our differences, and I can still love and respect you, uh, even if I disagree with you. Yeah. But I think there's a. Oh, I just say that I think there's a way to disagree with people without the hateful vitriolic that happens a lot yeah. of times. And I, I don't know what that balance is. You know, you don't want to be an echo chamber. I'm accused of that by um, the conservative literalists on queer emergent because I won't allow their their 
angry and mean comments on there, they're like, oh, you're just being an echo chamber. But my answer to them is, well, there's plenty of other places that you can go and have that kind of conversation. But sometimes there there needs to be a place where people can feel safe to come out of their shell and talk. But then there are the avenues where you can have those dialogue with people and disagree, but do it in a nice way, which I have experienced with some conservative people. But yeah. I don't know what the balance is. Well, I would have to say that, uh, I mean, not only love, but I think a lot of it has to do with social maturity. I think uh, the problem is, is so many people are walled in. They don't really see too much of anything outside of what they think or believe. And then once that outsider comes into that, their social maturity is so low that it's a shock to their system. I, I, I really think with the... With the advent of the internet, with uh, with I guess television in a lot of ways, it is actually broadening out the social maturity because people are actually able to go out and in small ways begin to experience what they could not have before in their little walled off places. I can't believe that Leighton just gave us a lecture on maturity. Wow. <laughs> now I'm never going to speak again. I, I'm done. <laughs> but one of the ways that we, we do this in ICON, one of our values is um, what's called suspended space um, or kenosis in theology. Uh, and what we ask of everybody who enters the bar uh, of ICON, we say that um, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. This is a verse in the Bible. But we go further. We go, there's neither rich nor poor, neither liberal nor Democrat, neither Fox nor CNN, neither gay nor straight, neither Fox, uh, hawk nor dove. Um, and what we tr what we do is you can't actually forget if you're a man or a woman or if you're gay or you're straight. But we ask people to symbolically enact this suspension um, and, and, and come into that space and, and almost and, uh, divest themselves of their identity. So when people say, you know, oh, so they're gay people in icon, I say, no, there's no gay people in icon. There's no straight people either. You know, there are there rich. No, there's no liberals or conservatives in icon symbolically for that one hour. There is neither nor. And then what happens is we all encounter each other beyond our positioning as American or Irish or black or white or whatever it is, just for an hour, just symbolically. But it means that when we leave that place, we actually uh, can engage in, our, in dialogue and difference and disagreement in a mature way because I've met you in that place of suspension. I've met you and had a pint with you in a, in, a, in, a, in a place where those identities, symbolically at least, were let go. So an icon, the suspended space, I think, tries to generate um, a culture where we can disagree in a much more mature way. Yeah, and I think that's a great and a necessary first step. And the next step after you've gotten through that is to uh, notice the differences and, and appreciate people for who they are. Yeah, and, and, and some people come back on me, yes, because some people say, oh, right, you know, this is, um, you know, you're not appreciating people's identities uh, okay. in this suspended space. But I'm always going, no, it's so that we can really appreciate them, that, that you create these places, these little deserts in the oasis of life, okay. these little places where we, where we lay down. And then the Bible's called Kenosis because, you know, it says that, you know, Jesus considered, God considered himself nothing, you know, and, and emptied himself. And so in one sense... What I'm saying is that we try to symbolically enact that Christian language. We divest ourselves, but not because our identities aren't important, but because uh, 
so that we can talk about them in a, in a better way. But I think that we need those suspended spaces in our lives. Uh, maybe even, to, I mean, icons just once a month, but just somewhere where, uh, like in a relationship, where you're silent with the other person and you're not talking. And actually, you know, it's not about what you believe about politics or what you believe about religion. You sit down on the sofa, you're, you're, you're cuddling into each other, you're holding hands and just for a moment, it doesn't matter what political opinion or religious opinion your husband or wife has. You're, you're, you're hitting that canonic moment. And that actually helps the relationship in the day-to-day life. That's probably a good place to wind it up, don't you think? Yeah, yeah. We've, uh, we've kind of gone beyond what you, our normal well, That's time fine. Is, so. um, <laughs> do you guys want to uh, have one more comment? Any closing statements? I don't know. I've just, I've just really enjoyed this. I'm really glad it actually kind of happened and um, I'm looking forward to actually listening to your podcasts and, and hopefully uh, maybe meeting you in the flesh sometime. Oh, I'd love So that. thank you very much. Really enjoyed Great. it. We should all meet out in Utah. Definitely. <laughs> uh, thanks, guys, for having us and uh, interviewing Pete and me. Yeah, it's amazing yep. um, to me because in the United States we get so inundated by fundamentalist Christianity. It's just nice to talk to people who are rational and reasonable and, and have different perspectives. Well, I mean, we even tried to get, uh, we did uh, a full month on the LDS religion, and we couldn't get a single one of them to come on board right. with us. So right. actually, right. it's it's very much appreciated for you guys to come on and just discuss religion with us. So, oh, thank you. welcome. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. Okay. Thanks, Pete. Cheerio. Thank you.